the key to revival praying is you have to understand the difference between a sprain and a break. Our nation, our families are broken. And there is a sense of an emergency that we must have if we're going to get to the end of the story. Before you can experience the, the fear of God returning and the kingdom's understanding that God is to be worshiped, we have to understand how serious our condition really is. Thanks for joining us today for Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Last week, Pastor Trent began to take us through a pattern for revival found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We learned that humility is the first step in preparing ourselves for revival. Today, we'll hear about the next step for a revival-seeking Christian, prayer. Here's Pastor Trent. We are three weeks into this series we've entitled Awakenings, and uh, we are going after the annihilation of sleepy, drowsy, groggy Christianity. We are in pursuit of waking up this morning, and in part, we are memorizing a verse of Scripture. How many of you remember the verse that I've challenged you to memorize as a part of this series? What book is it found in? Some of you knew that. What chapter? Excellent. Verse. Here it is. Let's say it together. Habakkuk 3.2. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O oh Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. That is the prayer of a heart that is tired of sleepy, drowsy, groggy Christianity. We want to be awakened in God's presence. And the book of Second Chronicles is the history of the awakenings that took place in the Old Testament. And uh, there were seasons that God's people got off course. There's a pattern in worship, on mission with God, but from time to time, we get a little sleepy, and we begin to wander, and our eyes get off the Lord, and we begin to commit sins of idolatry, and we slide into sin, and that invites the discipline and the judgment of God, which is His loving hand, to get us to cry out, to cry up, and in response to our prayers of faith, God comes, revives his church, restores holiness among his people, and that spills over into the community in a great awakening among the lost. That pattern we see over and over and over in biblical history and even in our national history, God does it again. What he has done in the past, he will do again. That's our hope for an awakening. And we found that the book of Second Chronicles has the most famous of all awakening verses. Do you know what it is? Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, will do four things, four conditions of revival. If we're gonna have an awakening, we gotta do four things. We have to humble ourselves. Last week we saw a king, Rehoboam, and he humbled himself before the Lord. Today we're gonna see a king who does the second condition. He prays. We're gonna talk about revival praying. We're gonna look at seven elements of revival praying here this morning. But we've got to humble ourselves to pray, to seek his face, to turn from our wicked ways. Then he promises three results of an awakening. 
He will hear our prayer from heaven. He will forgive our sin. He will heal our land. Do we need an awakening? Okay, four of you think we do. Uh, my job this morning is to convince the other 500 of you that we need an awakening. So we're going to be on this train together. And remember last week we reminded you, it's like our church is all about discipleship, right? It's all about disciple making. And every time we meet together, we're trying to make disciples because we're trying to fulfill the Great Commission. That's the mission of our church. So the question was, how does revival, this, this instantaneous, sudden awakening, how does that fit into the disciple-making process that happens over years, just little by little, slowly by slowly, the process of becoming more like Jesus. This is discipleship. So how does revival fit into that? It's very important that we understand revival is a crisis that accelerates the process of discipleship. So we need both the crisis of revival and the process of discipleship and what we find is that in seasons of awakening, God may do in five minutes what it would otherwise take five years of discipleship to get done, right? So we need both, and we need a crisis. We need an awakening. Even this morning as we meet together, God, answer our prayer. We've heard the report of you and your work, but do we fear in the midst of our years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. That is our heart cry this morning. You know, as your pastor, I'm always looking for signs of an awakening. And I hope you're looking for them too. Have you seen the signs of awakening going on around here? I mean, these baptistry waters have been spilling out all over the place, and sometimes I can't even preach because everybody wants to get saved around here, and, and we've got prayer happening, and we're reaching into the community, and there's just all kinds of good stuff going on. There is an awakening happening as a result of what God has been doing in, in response to our prayers. One of the most famous revival historians is named J. Edwin Orr. J. Edwin Orr uh, studied the great awakenings in American history and around the world and even biblical history. And one day he was meeting with a group of pastors and teachers and seminary professors, and he asked them a question. He said, I once asked a conference of pastors, teachers, and evangelists and workers to specify the greatest need of our times. One of them said, surely it's the Great Commission to evangelize those who have never heard. Another said, Sunday school, we, must, we mustn't lose the coming generation. If we lost them, we lost everything. Another one said, it's the training of the ministry. Another one said, no, it's stewardship. The Lord's church must have money. And so everybody had a different opinion. Another person said, no, it's combating drug addiction and crime and so on. So everybody had a different idea about what the greatest need of our time was. J. Edwin Orr wisely responded with this question. He said, would tackling any one of these problems solve any of the others? Would promoting proper stewardship solve the problems of, of drug addiction? Would filling the Sunday schools automatically recruit missionaries? They agreed that the needs were separate but related, and so he said this. Is there anything that would make an impact on all the problems at once? So they scratched their heads, couldn't come up with anything. And then he very wisely said this. Yes, there is! Revival! According to the records, revival fills the churches, raises up evangelists, calls pastors, recruits missionaries, brings in funds, reunites families, and delivers from addiction. 
We need revival. And as great as we think things are happening around here, we are just scratching the surface of all the work the Lord wants to do. Now, I want you to see what revival looks like. You got your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles. Are you in chapter 20? I want you to look at the end of the story. We're going to go through this story here, but I want you to see the end of it from the beginning, and I want you to look in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 29. Here's what revival looks like. And the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. All in favor of the fear of God coming upon this nation, say amen. Amen. All in favor of the fear of God coming upon all the nations, say amen. amen. All in favor of the fear of God coming upon all the kingdoms within all the nations, the kingdom of your home, the kingdom of government, the kingdom of education, the kingdom of entertainment, the kingdom of media, the kingdom of art and All in favor, say amen. Amen. That's what revival looks like. So notice this is verse 29. We got 28 verses to figure out. How do you get some of that? So go back up to verse 1. Here's the first thing that we're going to see is a characteristic of revival praying. Revival praying begins with a sense of emergency. Look at verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Menunites and I'm sure there were some termites. Who are all these people? What, what is, what, what are these people? Listen, these were the enemies of God, okay? These were the leftover people that inhabited the promised land before Israel came in to occupy that territory. And these people remained. We're going to find out later it's because God wanted them to remain. You'll see that in a minute. But all of a sudden, they get a little hatred in their heart for the people of God. And they begin to surround them. Look at what it says. They came against Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's going to be our hero in the story. He's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And they came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, always need some men in a story about an awakening. There were some men that came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazamazamatamar, that is in Gedi. So, of course, now you know exactly where they are, right? I mean, you have a picture on your Google map where these people are, right? Let me put it this way, okay? Uh, Is there anybody here from Texas? Just raise your hand. Anybody from Texas? Don't, don't, don't woo. Just raise your hand, okay? Let's see some people from Texas. Now, you have to understand about people from Texas. They think they're our nation, okay? They, they think they're our, their own sovereign nation, okay? So let's get in our imaginations that the nation of Texas declared war on the city of Granger. Actually, Granger's not really a city, is it? Let's say Michiana, all right? So the nation of Texas declared war on the people of Michiana. And so they're mad and they want to wipe us out. They want to do an ethnic cleansing. Just They just don't like you. Maybe they think you're too godly and they don't like God, so they're going to come. The nation of Texas is going to invade, all right? So here they come. They are marching toward Granger, 
All right? So they, they leave Texas and they come through Arkansas. The reason they have to go through Arkansas is because they always get defeated by Oklahoma. So they come through... <laughs> Sorry, in case you didn't know, I'm from Oklahoma. So they, they come through Arkansas and they're coming up through Missouri and they get to Illinois. They're marching, they're marching. Here they come, here they come. They're in Indiana now. They're... Now they're in Indianapolis, and here they come up 31, and they take the bypass around Kokomo, so now they can go faster, and they're marching, and they're marching, and they're coming, and they are now, they're in Mishawaka. Is there some sense of an emergency? I mean, here they come, the marauding Texas army. Here, here they come. That's the sense of an emergency. These men come and report to, to Jehoshaphat. There is an emergency. Do you understand the threat? The enemies of God have surrounded us. They are closer than they have ever been. What are you going to do? My son, Zach, when he was little, had trouble staying on a trampoline. Apparently, he was always the smallest kid on the trampoline. So when the big kid would land on the trampoline, little scrawny Zach would go flying off the trampoline. And so inevitably, he would come home holding his arm, crying, and his arm would be... And, and he would come to Andrea, and Andrea... He went to Andrea because he got a much softer heart than I do. And he's like, my arm is... And she's like, oh, honey, I think, it's, I think he broke his arm. You're going to have to load him up and take him to the emergency room. And I'm like, okay, all right. So I took him. And I'm thinking, it's not broken. Just rub a little dirt on it. You'll be fine in the morning, you know, but that didn't really go for a mom. And so I would take him. And seven and a half hours later, and $1,000 poorer, we would come out and the doctor would say, rub a little dirt on it. It'll be fine, you know. And it was sprained, not broken. So I'd come home and, and sure enough, the next week, he'd go flying off the trampoline. And he'd come home and the arms, you know, is swollen and scraped and he's crying. He goes to Andrea and she's like, I think it's broken for sure this time. It's like, no, it's not. I don't have any more money. And this would happen like almost every week. And we'd make a trip to the emergency room and there were x-rays and doctor bills. And he'd come home and uh, just rub a little dirt on it, and it'll be fine, you know? Well, I, I'm, I don't have any more money left for the emergency room, and sure enough, here he comes, and the arms hanging down and everything, and Andrea's like, you got to go, you got to go. And I'm like, no, honey, I'm just not going to do it. It's sprained. I know the drill. I could, I've looked at this. looks just like it did the other three times. So I'm like, two hours, three hours, four hours later, he's still kind of moaning and complaining, and Andrea said, you're taking my son to the emergency room. And I'm like, okay, because if I don't deal with that emergency, I'm going to have a different emergency on my hands. So I'm like, I'm going to the emergency room with my son. Sure enough, broken in three places, two different surgeries, three different you know, screws and plates and all this stuff. And he's got a wonderful zipper on his arm right now that looks really awesome now that all that's over with. But the key to revival praying is you have to understand the difference between a sprain and a break. Our nation, our families are broken. And there is a sense of an emergency that we must have if we're going to get to the end of the story. Before you can experience the 
the fear of God returning and the kingdom's understanding that God is to be worshiped, we have to understand how serious our condition really is. How can you know that we are living in a state of an emergency? Well, here's a clue. When when opposite-sex couples have no interest in marriage but are content just hooking up, while same-sex couples are no longer content just hooking up and want to be married. That's a sign that there's a state of an emergency going on in our country. And all of that is just the spillover of unbridled sexuality to ignore and forsake the plan of God for our gender identity when women want to be men and men want to be women and they're willing to cut off body parts in order to try to conform to what they think, which is completely opposite of what God says. We are living in a state of an emergency. And the greatest problem in all of it is so many people who are so-called Christians stand back and say, well, I just think we should love everybody and everybody should just be able to do what they're supposed to do. No, we need to come up under the fear of God. All of it is just simply the unraveling of God's plan and purpose for our lives. Divorce and adultery and immorality and pornography and human trafficking, all of it is an, all of it is an understanding that we are living in a state of emergency. When there is crime and racism and poverty and hatred and rioting in the streets, you might want to wake up to how real the emergency is. Clay Christensen is a Harvard Law professor. And he went back and studied the influence of revival and awakenings in American history. And had some very interesting things to say to us to understand how important it is that we experience another awakening in our time. Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. And I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or synagogue every week and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Without another great awakening, you will not be able to pass enough laws and hire enough police to keep the order in America. We must understand there is a great emergency. 
that has to take place. So look at verse three. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, you think? Jehoshaphat was afraid, and so what do you do when you're afraid? You've got a choice. You can either flee or you can respond in faith. Look at what he does. He set his face to seek the Lord. Good choice, king. That's a good king. Sometimes you need a king who will set his face to seek the Lord. That's what he did. And he did this. He didn't just set his face. He did something very practical. He proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Do you know what a fast is? You know what fasting is? Fasting is not a weight loss program. Fasting is not skipping dessert, okay? Fasting is a very important God-given tool. Let's define it this way. Fasting is a God-ordained way of heightening our sense of emergency and intensifying our hunger for Him. Do you know what your body does when you skip a meal? It declares an emergency. It lets you know, hey, something's missing, right? And what you do when you fast is say, I am going to intentionally skip a meal or two or three or more so that I can awaken my spiritual senses to what my physical appetite knows is already true. There's something missing. And so King Jehoshaphat declared a fast. He wanted all the people to understand this is, this is so critical that we need God so much. We've got to increase and intensify our hunger for God. Even before he prayed, he fasted. Why? Because revival praying begins with a sense of of emergency. Here's the second thing. Revival praying intensifies in community. Look at verse 4. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly, underline the word assembly in verse 5. He stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the court. Sometimes in an awakening, God uses the declaration of a king, and sometimes he uses the assembly of a people, because it wasn't enough for one person to declare, we've got a problem. The people had to respond in faith that what the king sensed was something they were also sensing, and so he gathered the people together because there's power in community. Let me ask you a question. Who would assemble to come and rally around you if you had an emergency? I mean, if the pipes busted in the house, I was talking to my mom this week and, and um, her husband uh, is in the stages of dementia and he turned on a water faucet and the drain was plugged and he left the water on and he did that twice this week and flooded the house twice. And there was a sense of an emergency. And fortunately, my mom has a lot of people that love her and came over and, and helped her in that situation. But there's a, there's a spiritual go emergency going on in some of us. Some of us have no appetite for God. Some of us have habits that are enslaving us to sin. Do you have somebody that you could call that would assemble to pray and seek the Lord on your behalf? 
So Jehoshaphat says, we're assembling the people. Uh, We use the term solemn assembly here because we understand there's a state of an emergency going on. And we need to understand how critical this is. Jesus said, my house is to be called a house of prayer together in community. Do you know what you will find if you study the prayers in the New Testament? You will almost always find that those prayers were gathered prayers in community. It uses the words our and we rather than my and me. It's prayer in community. You say, oh, I could never pray out loud, and I just wouldn't know what to say, and I'm sure somebody would be sitting over there grading me, and I'd never get more than a, like a D minus on any prayer I'd ever pray. And like, you don't get it. How do you learn to pray? You learn to pray by listening to people who know how to pray. And there are some people in this church that know how to pray. You need to figure out where they are and where they're going to pray and go in and listen. And you need to learn to pray in community. We together need to assemble ourselves in times of seeking the Lord. Here's the third characteristic of revival praying. Revival praying focuses on God's sovereignty. So what did they pray? Look here in verse 6. Here's the script of their prayer. They said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, they asked God if he was God in heaven. Did they ask God if he was God in heaven because God didn't know whether or not he was God in heaven? Why would they pray that way? Why would they, first of all, vertically focus on who and where God was? Wouldn't you expect if the marauding Texans had surrounded us that we would go and say, God, get them? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the first thing you would pray? That's not the first thing they prayed. The first thing they prayed was not that God would relieve the problem. The first thing that they prayed was that they would get an accurate view of who God was and what his power was like. And so he says, are you not God in heaven? By the way, what's the answer to that question? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm sure that was the answer back. You rule over all kingdoms of the nations, not just our kingdom and our nation, but the nations that are now surrounding us, you rule over them. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. What do we need to understand about God when we're in a season of an emergency? We need to understand how serious the threat is, but we also need to understand how powerful our God is. And we need to understand that not one king, one president, one terrorist, or one nation moves one inch without the permission of Almighty God. That's the perspective we need before we start asking God to change the situation. Looking at today's political, financial, and cultural climate, we might feel as if we're in a state of emergency. We, the church, can respond in faith to what's happening around us, just as King Jehoshaphat and the nation of Israel did. Come back next week as Pastor Trent concludes this message with four more elements of revival praying. 
Well, thanks for listening today to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. We'd like to invite you to visit us for one of our weekend worship services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. My prayer for you is that God's word would resonate in your heart and mind. I hope you'll join us next week at this same time. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger, harvestgranger.org.